Welcome to the Cybersecurity Defenders podcast, episode number 15. My name is Christopher Luft. I'm one of the co-founders of Lima Charlie, and I will be your host. On today's episode, SONS DEFER instructor Matt Bromley will be taking us through some of the techniques employed by bad actors in his segment, The Adversary Toolbox. We also sit down with Michael Lodenslager, VP of Cybersecurity at Churchill Mortgage, to learn more about security in the cloud. This episode is brought to you by Lima Charlie, makers of cybersecurity tools and supporting infrastructure delivered as a service. The approach is very similar to the way that Amazon Web Services delivers components of IT infrastructure, but the technologies are focused around cybersecurity and automating operations. Things like EDR, Windows Event Log Monitoring, Multi-Source Telemetry Ingestion, Data Routing at the Event Level, File Integrity Monitoring, Memory Dumps at Scale, Yara Scanning, Curated Detection Rules, Integrations with Velociraptor, an Atomic Red Team, and many others. The list just goes on and on and is growing all the time. Everything is available on demand and designed API first using infrastructure as code. It's a DevOps friendly approach to cybersecurity that is long overdue. If you're curious and want to check it out, you can sign up for the full featured free tier without ever talking to a salesperson at limacharlie.io. Hey everyone, this is Matt from Lima Charlie and welcome to the Adversary Toolbox. In this segment, we're going to spend a few minutes chatting about a particular adversary tool or tactic. Our goal is to bring light to the different TTPs that adversaries use so that we as defenders can be on the lookout and aware of how tools are used or abused within our environments. In this segment, we're going to continue our examination of lateral movement tools. Now, our previous episodes focused on tools like PS Exec, PA Exec, PowerShell Remoting, all of which may be utilized for scripted and or command line operations. We're going to go a little bit different this time and look at a tool that might also be lateral movement, but can also be used for remote access as well. For our final two episodes in the lateral movement, we're going to look at GUI-based capabilities, the first one being Remote Desktop Protocol, or RDP. RDP is one of the most famous types of protocols and by the same name features of the Windows operating system. Many are familiar with the uniqueness and properties of port 3389. It allows users to connect to a remote system via a graphical interface and interact with the system almost as if they were physically at the keyboard and monitor themselves. RDP is commonly used by businesses and organizations to allow employees and sysadmins to access a system for remote purposes. It's also really, really beneficial for remote technical support and remote administration of services and other network devices. These reasons and many more are probably the reason why remote desktop protocol is often allowed at the firewall for business purposes and thus creates a potential gap for adversaries to take advantage of. Furthermore, Oftentimes, adversaries only need legitimate credentials, which is many times implemented in single-factor authentication, to connect to an externally-facing instance. And unfortunately, credentials are easy to steal or buy or obtain via other means, such as spear phishing. A few abuses of the RDP service and or protocol include brute force attacks, man-in-the-middle attacks, malware infections. Sometimes we see RDP used as an internal lateral movement technique. Privilege escalation, remote code execution. We've also seen over the years RDP be vulnerable to certain types of exploits and zero days. If anyone remembers Blue Keep from a few years ago, it was a great example of how an external facing service might be abused by an adversary. Speaking of which, RDP abuse has been going on for many, many years by various threat actors from APT groups. And in some basic research, I saw that APT1 to APT41 all used RDP and extensive use of financially motivated adversaries, as well as hacktivists and disruption groups as well. Now, RDP is not enabled by default, but it is built into the Windows operating system and can be easily enabled. Furthermore, it is not uncommon for it to be enabled and left open, and it quite frankly may not be discovered during a security audit. 
After all, confirming RDP is on a Windows system isn't an abnormal or irregular finding, right? Adversaries are going to look for these gaps, something that security teams should work to patch. Furthermore, let's make sure we're using strong passwords, enable that multi-factor authentication, keep all software up to date, and let's make sure that if we're not even needing RDP, let's turn it off. But if we do need it, limit the number of users to only those who need it and monitor RDP activity for suspicious activity, just like we would any sort of remote access protocol. Here at Lima Charlie, we recommend using multiple sources of telemetry to identify suspicious RDP activity. First and foremost, if you have network monitoring enabled, it's going to be a great place to check to see if that protocol is being used. Second, check to see if it's even being used in your environment in the first place. Your administrators may not even use it. Users may not want to use it, which is creates a really easy baseline for you, similar to what we talked about with PowerShell remoting in our last segment. Furthermore, if it is used and we need to come up with detection ideas, we can combine process execution events for the RDP client executables like mstsc.exe or rdpclip.exe with Windows event logs. We can also take a look at Windows terminal services logs, which are RDP-specific logs. And all these events combined can create a really powerful second or tertiary approach to determining whether RDP activity is expected or not. As always, though, and as I mentioned just a moment ago, developing a baseline as to whether this activity is used in your environment or not is perhaps the most important first step to take. All right, that's it for this segment of the Adversary Toolbox. Join me next time where we'll continue our exploration of adversarial tactics and techniques. We've got one more segment on lateral movement and remote access. We're going to look at the things we can do to better prepare our detections for them. I'll see you next time. Next up, my interview with Michael Lodenslager, VP of Cybersecurity at Churchill Mortgage. My guest today is Michael Lodenslager, VP of Cybersecurity at Churchill Mortgage Corporation. Thanks for being here with us on the show today. No problem. Thanks for having me. Uh, to get started, do you want to introduce yourself? Tell us what it is your company does and what your role is there? Sure. So, uh, again, Michael Lodenslager, I'm the VP of Cybersecurity at Churchill Mortgage Company. Um, obviously, we're, we're a mortgage company. Um, been around for 30 years. So, um, it's a, it's a very well-established company, and I've been there, uh, I started in August of 22. So I am, uh, I'm basically in charge of all aspects of, um, of our company's security. So they had security in place, but there was a need to create a more secure culture. So yes, there was security settings, but I'm there to create more of a culture, create an info set program, and just really take security to the next level. Um, and, and really bring it all in-house is, is really my goal. The company's 30 years old and has a VP of cybersecurity. This leads me to believe that Churchill Mortgage Corporation is forward-thinking when it comes to technology. Has the company always been at the forefront of technological innovation, or was there a big shift at some point? <laughs> it's funny, the mortgage industry, there's, there's not much change to it. Um, it it's very hard to, to change, but Churchill has definitely been, they've been forward-thinking uh, ebbs and flows, right? So, uh, the big thing that changed for them recently was they decided as a whole to create their own internal IT. So, most of mortgage companies, different parts of the loan process, you have four or five external vendors that most companies use. Churchill's trying to do something different. And so, what they've done is they've brought in IT completely in house. And so, development, support, infrastructure, and obviously security. So 
um, it's it's great because they've been around so long. They work as a um, no debt company, so there's zero debt with our company. It's all cash positive. We had a, a huge uh, thirty year celebration during one of the worst mortgage times <laughs> that you can imagine in recent years, and so we've done a ton of hiring. Um, so as other companies have gone under, we're we're actually increasing our market share right now. So um, they're very much forward thinking, but strategically. That's great. Um, looking at your CV, I can see you do quite a bit of work in the cloud. You list experience that ranges across Office 365, Azure, AWS, and GCP. Um, what are the biggest threats or blind spots that companies should be aware of as they move their operations into the cloud? A couple things. I mean, this is a this is a, a big one. This is what I get asked a lot of questions on. It's funny. My answer would have been different pre-pandemic, as with a lot of things. I think what happened: the pandemic forced companies that weren't really ready to go to the cloud to go to the cloud. And the biggest problem, and this kind of leads into the biggest problem, wasn't enough knowledge to bring all these companies into the cloud correctly. One of the great things about the cloud is how easy it is to spin it up, add more services, move services into it. The problem is, and uh, I've heard this too many times, it, the, the quality of the build depends on who's building it. And I've had too many situations where I come in um, and it's like, oh, my cousin did it. He's pretty <laughs> good at the cloud. And, <laughs> and so that's, that's the biggest problem to me is that nothing is secure by default. So when you check a box for a service, it's not secure out of the box. What makes it more difficult in the cloud is the security. For instance, you know, in, in on-prem world, you had your firewall that did a lot of your in and out security. And then you have, you know, you'd be able to monitor the network traffic and see a lot of that. And then you go to your exchange server and you build that and all your securities contain kind of within there and AD. The cloud is different. You got to jump around to a lot of different portals to do a lot of things. Most of your security for your products are through um, group policies, uh, maybe Intune, depending on how you're deploying it, but conditional access policies. But if you don't know about conditional access policies, when you're going to create your Office 365 and your SharePoint sites, not really mentioned there. And mm -hmm. so that's a lot of the weaknesses that I see. And the biggest blind spots is you don't know what you don't know. And there's no standards to building in the cloud. You know, there's kind of here's how we recommend to do it. But Microsoft won't tell you here's how you here's the conditional access policies you need. And then it differs by company. And then um, same thing with AWS, GCP, same thing. They're I can make it the most secure it could be, but I have a ton of knowledge that most people don't. And it's, it's not written out there. And then it gets crazy if you go hybrid. If you're mm -hmm. in Office 365 and Azure and AWS and you have on-prem, that's a whole different ball game. And so... You know, your even junior levels don't really have the full skill set to get to there. And so you had all these big companies moving. And that's one of the reasons why you see 
the uptick in breaches because it's the cloud, because a lot of them aren't secure the way they should be. And so that really, that's really what it comes down to is you have to make sure you're secure as you're moving up. And not only during the process of onboarding, every single day. Because as new services come online or new capabilities, what was secure today may not be secure tomorrow. And so that's one of the things too, is always rechecking yourself as new services come in, new capabilities come in. That's why they give you previews of things so you could test them out. Um, It's it's really what makes the cloud so easy to use is also what makes it difficult to secure and how easy it is to set things up for people that don't really know how to secure it. Yeah, those default configurations are meant to make it work easily, not make it secure because it's more important to their business that you get the thing you're trying to do running because now you're invested. And then if you don't turn around to make sure that's secure, you're going to build a a big house of cards. Exactly. And I've had um, in my I do instant response um, on the side independently. I help friends and, and the government with certain things. And I had a company that pretty much lost everything. All they did was they wanted to test the cloud. All they did was do AD Connect to see what it would look like. And they were compromised and their global admin account was up there. And that's how it happened. They weren't even using it for production. All they did was sync AD. And that's how dangerous it could be for them. And they were completely on-prem. So that just goes to show you somebody testing something over a weekend just to see how it looked basically brought the company to its knees. Wow. Um, Speaking of IR, you talk about the importance of tabletop exercises to organizational preparedness. Can you briefly summarize what a tabletop exercise should look like and why it's important for organizations to participate in these exercises? Yeah, basically... uh, a tabletop exercise is basically you're testing your incident response plan. That's that's tabletop in a nutshell is what you should have is your incident response plans and your playbooks and your run books, depending on what the scenario is, ransomware or um, uh, DDoS, whatever it is, a tabletop exercise. And there's two ways to do it. I'll give you the nice way and then I'll give you the mean way that I, that I like <laughs> to do it. Um, only sometimes, but what you do is it, your incident response plan. Um, you get everybody in a room that's part of that incident response. So let's just take ransomware because that's always at the, the top of mind for most people. And what you do is as you go down in your team, you get everybody from the team in a room and you basically start going through from um, the user calls into the service desk and says, Um, I had this message pop up that says my stuff is encrypted. And you basically step it through to see how it works. And you give scenarios. So what I like to do is I like to get colleagues. And and so I'll help other colleagues and I'll be the person who runs it. And you try to get somebody from outside to kind of run the run the the exercise itself. And you give answers. And so you, you basically go through the plan. Hi, I'm a user. I call up and I can't. I can't, uh, I get this message says everything I have is encrypted. And so you go to the, the person assigned to the service desk 
what are your questions? What do you ask? And, and my plan, I have questions that they could ask. And, and we, we also do reviews to this before. And so you go through each step all the way through communications, telling the board, calling your cyber insurance company, getting an IR, everything that you need. Because you want to find out your flaws there and not during the real thing. And, and so you try to do those. Um, I try to do them every quarter. Uh, if possible, and you do a different scenario, and some could be really small ones, uh, a malware. Uh, so I try not to do big ones back to back. So maybe in the first right. quarter you do malware. What do you do when you have a malware? Well, obviously you don't need the entire T-Cert team, and so you just go through little things like that. But that's where you find out where stuff's going to happen because one, things change and and different people. So depending on who you have from the service desk who you have from different teams. So you kind of vet that out and change wording and, and different things. But the critical part is the muscle memory. Because when this is real, things get forgotten. And, mm-hmm. and I've been through well over 100 of these. And it's, it's funny the little things or even the big things that people forget to do. Um, I've seen them go through the whole thing and there's a malware and it's going through. And in the first two hours, everybody forgot to disconnect the device from the network. <laughs> Something is that yeah. it, we laugh, right? But you get into that um, with blinders on and, yeah. and you, you tend to hyper focus on a single thing instead of looking where if you get muscle memory, what I like to do, the mean thing to do is I do unscheduled and unannounced tabletops remotely um, because that's more realistic of what happens today. And so I'll, and it, it won't, it won't be anything crazy and it won't be at like midnight, but at seven o'clock at night, I'll call somebody up and says, Hey, we have this, you know, um, what would, you, you know, this is a test. What would you do for these three things? And that one, you find out so much more info. <laughs> the last time I had this, I found out we discovered two senior people had do not disturb enabled on their phone after nine o'clock at night. So could did you imagine if that was real, which more scenarios than not are after hours. Yeah. If you're trying to get a hold of your senior infrastructure person and they're watching a movie with their phone on do not disturb. So it is it yes, it's a little mean. But that's real world. That's real world scenarios. I have more incident responses that happen off hours than you do during normal business hours. And so that's more realistic about what's going to happen. You know, what's going to happen if you're in the middle of dinner and this happens? It's, Mm -hmm. you know, you're talking that two minutes to get to your computer is a big, is a big chunk of time when you know, you have malware spreading through your environment. So table types, in my opinion, are crucial. The one, making sure your plan works, making sure everybody who's part of the CISO team knows their responsibilities and vet out the things that aren't going to work in, in, a, in a real world scenario. Yeah, that's a great idea to do it after hours. I think that's probably, you know, where you're going to find find the flaws. Yeah, um, and there's always have, some people that aren't really 
you know, on the Christmas card list for the rest, you know, for that year. But <laughs> in the end, when you come out with your lessons learned, when you have that meeting, it's yeah. very eye opening and people tend to take their subsequent ones a lot more seriously. Because again, that's the lessons learned is the most important part of that whole process. You could find all of that, but if you're not learning and documenting and educating, then again, you're, it's, it goes with that whole muscle memory. You, you have to learn from it constructively and present it so everybody's learning from what we just went through. Yeah. No, I always try and uh, look at uh, areas where we make mistakes as a company or even as a developer as learning opportunities. And as long as you don't make the same mistake twice, you're heading in the right direction, right? And it, it, I'm sure you know, it, it's surprising how many don't do that. There's no mm-hmm. practice in, mm-hmm. in that. It's, it's a checkbox. No, we have, we have an incident response plan, but where is it? Uh, let me blow the dust off of it. And you see <laughs> but it hasn't been updated in three years. Yeah. A lot. Look what's happened to us in three years. Can you tell yeah. me your, your incident response plan from three years ago would work today? No mm-hmm. way. Um, do you have any thoughts on detection engineering and how important it is for organizations to invest in and building, invest in building and maintaining custom detect, detection logic? Yes, I have very strong opinions on, on this one. Um, my, my background really quick is uh, I've been in the IT for a while and in the hedge fund world for over 20 years. And I got towards the end of it and I actually went to a, a, a product company, try to create a product that does, that didn't exist and still doesn't. I'm still trying to work that angle. But what I find is when it comes to detection, just like people, every environment is different, right? You go to name it diets. They don't work for the same people. Everybody has different houses. You don't have cars. Same thing. We don't have just one kind of tire. We have many different kinds of tires, different kind of cars. Security should be the same way is it goes back to that checkbox mentality, right? I, I have I have MDR and XDR and every DR you could think of that people have. But then you come in and you look at it. Well, you're not getting alerts. I've done pen tests. And, and I do this one time I messed up, but then I actually do it after. I made the, the rookie mistake of um, I took my Raspberry Pi with my Kali Linux. I didn't update it. And so... They had one of the big firms in there. All they detected on my pen test was my call home to update my Cali Linux. That was it. And they're spending a couple hundred grand a year and they didn't catch anything I did. Because when I asked, I'm like, did you go through tuning? What's tuning? And so the scary part was they had an MSSP they didn't know what tuning was. So they made an agreement with this big vendor and a hundred of their clients had it. And all they did was slap it in, plug a couple of cables in, and that was it. Mm-hmm. And so with detection engineering, your security should be, it should know you and your company in order to be really, really effective. If you're just throwing it in there, that's no idea what it's looking for. You have, you can't tune it. You can't get the white noise out. Um, when I came into Churchill, that was one of the things I did. Uh, audited everything we have. Got rid of pretty much everything, um, including our MSSP. 
and brought in our own. And a month and a half it took to really tune everything. But I want to take it further. And and this is what um uh I'm gonna kind of dive into something else really quick when it comes to the detection part is that the problem today is you have a lot of these NDR companies try to just take what they do and move it to the cloud, which we all know doesn't work. NDR in a cloud, it, it's not the same thing. And so right there, that takes at least half of the companies out there don't do what they say they do. It just, mm-hmm. that's a fact. And so now you're limited to, to, the, to the vendors that you have. The problem is when you have large environments and you're hybrid, today, most companies have, well, these are the analytics and, and these are the detection things I could do for you in Azure. These are the ones I could do in Office 365. These are the ones I could do in, and you name it, they have it. What I'm trying to do is, and, and, and what I think the future is, is a single analytic. I don't care where my users log in. I want to run an analytic against all my logins. Today, you can't do that because there's no good way to do it. And so that was the kind of the project that I was looking into. An offshoot of that came, um, I don't know if you were heard at Black Hat about OCSF. The open source cybersecurity framework. Oh yeah, the new yeah, I have read about that actually. Yeah. So I'm a maintainer in there, and so there's a lot of large companies. It has grown hundreds of companies in there, and what it is is it's all the cybersecurity companies saying, "Let's use the same schema." So then, no matter what tool you have or what you're pulling in, everything's there. There's no normalization that has to happen. And what helps with detection engineering is now all these different tools that we have to use. I get all my data into one dashboard and whatever that is, whether I do it in-house or whether I go outside, now I could have an analytic that's running against that schema, no matter what data you throw into it. And I think that's going to be a game changer when it comes to detection engineering is because now today I can't get a full scope like you used to be able to 10 years ago before cloud when i was just ndr north south east west that's it you saw everything that you needed to see today that's that's different right the old way was you know ndr was i had a house and i went in the front door or the back door and that's it today with the cloud you can go through windows and vents and zoom meetings whatever you want to do there's so many different ways to come in now and there's really no good way today to see everything in one place. There's just too much sprawl. And that sprawl really goes against your detection. Um, mm-hmm. And which is why it's such a hot topic for me, because that's what we're trying to do today is to get that framework. And we, we have a lot of buy-in. We're, we're really, it started with Splunk and AWS. And then I was working at a company called IronNet, um, who was partnering with AWS. And we had started it, and it just so happened on another product meeting, we kind of referenced it. We're like, hey, we're trying to do the same thing. And that's how it all came out. And, and we were really close to getting that first version in. But could you imagine what you could do is if you're in an environment and you're in five different places, but your data all looks the same when it comes to what your detection and your analytics look like? Mm-hmm. That's huge. Mm-hmm. And now 
Now that makes tuning easier. And once you get that tuning done, now your analytics could really fire against the raw traffic that you've tuned to say, look right here in this small path and look for, and you could create all kinds of analytics. And then that gets into um, correlations, which I think is really the future of detection is not detecting one event. I want to know if this event happens and then these two other events happen within a minute's time. Right. Yeah. And so that's the future of it, uh, which is what I'm really trying to get in there and do. It's no longer just the East, West, North, South, one event. It's across your entire enterprise. What's going on in sequential order, not a mm-hmm. login from Uruguay because someone's traveling. It's, a login when the person was just logging in from the US, but then that same account accessed an application and then they um, they uploaded a file. That to yeah. me is a huge trigger, right? But those three independent events won't get flagged because yeah. that's normal activity, right? And so I think that's why when we get to the detection engineering, as you just heard me ramble on for now a few minutes, is why I feel so strongly about it is because the potential to really find things before they happen is is huge. Yeah, that's a big part of our philosophy at Lima Charlie. We take a telemetry in from any source, basically, and run it through the same detection and response engine. We normalize to our own format. It's not the open source version, but the similar ideas there. It's very it, cool. Yeah, the hope is that, you know, this grows into everybody uses it. So then I don't really have to care what products I have and what mm-hmm. doesn't work well with others. And because you start talking to the the companies that have all the analytics, well, it's like, well, this company has three that I like, and this has four that I like, and this other one has some. And they don't share data with each other and it's all proprietary. And yeah, no, that's, that doesn't help anybody. I believe that. Exactly. And that's, that's where we get the strongest. When we start realizing that if we start sharing data, we're going to be, it, it's going to, it may help us get to a point where we're not so far behind the bad actors because mm-hmm. as a mortgage company, for instance, I'm getting the same kind of attacks that everybody, all the other mortgage companies are. So if we come together and say, Hey, look, I just got hit by this IP address. You guys should block this IP. Imagine that world. That yeah. such an amazing thing that could happen when you start sharing, especially within each, not only within each industry, but the actual cloud vendors themselves, because they all have their inherent risks and vulnerabilities. But if you could share that data, I mean, guys, the limit with how secure, I may not even get attacked for a year, but I'm still safe and current because I'm sharing my data with all the other in the industry. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it shouldn't be treated as a zero sum game. And I, I think if any industry might be able to pull it off, it would be information security because i think the the feelings you're expressing are are pretty ubiquitous amongst most people practicing and that's what's great about our industry is we're all willing to help each other it's not i work for churchill no i'm a Mm -hmm. cybersecurity guy and i'm a nerd Mm -hmm. when it comes to it and i love helping others if somebody reached out to me tonight hey i saw you on linkedin i see you do a lot of answer response i need some help cool let's go You don't get that in a lot of other industries, Mm -hmm. right? And so I 100% agree. I think if any industry can do it, 
we can. I'm always interested in how people came to a career in technology. Uh, how did you start down this road that you're so passionate about? I'm going to age myself. This is going <laughs> to get bad. Um, I like to think computers found me. Um, <laughs> I started in high school, a part-time job. I used to be a pager technician. And so for all of you young folks that don't know what that is, it's beepers and pagers. Um, this was in the, the early nineties. And so that's what I, that's what I started in high school in junior and senior year. Um, when I left in that summer that I graduated, pagers had blown up at that point. You could go to a Firestone tires and get a pager. And so I went and worked for a company that, um, and you could probably see back then in the nineties, those big, huge pagers that the doctors used to carry that had four lines of text on it. Well, this company was the first one to do news and sports scores to pager. And my second week there as a pager technician, their computer person quit. And the owner was like, you're the closest thing we have. You're now doing IT too. That is how I got into computers. And, you know, as a young kid, my mom always tells stories of how I, I always take things apart all the time. I love to see how things work. And so jumping into that, into the 90s, this was 94. There was no classes. There was no schools, nothing. And so it was just, well, what happens when this happens? And it was just learning. And I was hooked. Just forget it. It was mm -hmm. hook, line, sinker. And then in the 90s, you know, you could, I would get uh, consulting gigs, uh, like two weeks, six weeks. I think the longest I took was like six months and it was so much work. It was great. And then, you know, obviously the Y2K bug. And uh, that's when I was, I saw the writing on the wall, like, well, this isn't going to last that long. And so that's when I got into trading. I, I, uh, I really liked the fast pace of, of trade floors and hedge funds and, and stay there. But yeah, I, it started as fixing beepers. That's how it all started. That's a great story. Yeah, I never had one, but my uh, wife's father had given her one so that he could get a hold of her. And, and again, for the young people who might be listening to this, a pager worked. You could dial a number and the little device a person carried would would buzz or beep and it would show the number you were supposed to call. And generally, you'd have to find a payphone, which is a thing that used to be everywhere. <laughs> and then you'd go call the person back to see what was going on. And I think you, you could get a couple digits in there. So there was codes. Yeah. You like could the, send somebody what was a the, code. Uh, oh, hello. The 07734. Type yeah. it in and flip it over. <laughs> That's how you would say hello. So again, I just, I just dated myself pretty bad there. My kids were yeah. here. They'd be embarrassed. <laughs> um, so as a cybersecurity practitioner uh, who's seen it all come and go, uh, looking out at the vendor marketing noise, what are your thoughts? Like, what are the people who are selling cybersecurity tools and solutions doing that is right? And what is it that they're doing wrong? Uh, <laughs> I understand the struggle. I do. I, I'm, I'm in that same boat. It's, I, I get blown up day after day after day with all kinds of info. And, and I don't mind info. I love it. I, I, I like reading new things and new technologies. What I, what I say is this is I, I don't need your freebies. I don't need the, the, I could, I could probably drink free Starbucks coffee for the next two years. <laughs> if I took every call and email, um, I try, I, I'm one of those weird people. My, my inbox is completely organized and I never have an unread email. I read every email that comes in. 
I just obviously don't have the time to reply to everyone. What, what I would say, the thing that bothers me the most is if I didn't reply to you, probably doesn't mean send me another reply on top yeah, of another reply 12. when all of a sudden <laughs> yeah. I open it and in two months you've replied to your reply seven times, right? Saying the same thing is give me time with you. Give me time with you. I know there's innovative products out there, but be innovative and unique in how you approach. Understand who you're talking to. I am an extremely technical VP. And so I'm, I'm in the weeds every single day. So one, if you spell my name wrong, or if you say instead of hi, Lord and Slayer, instead of hi, Michael, I'm not reading the rest of your email. And try to understand and take the effort. And, and I've, I've taken meetings and called back vendors that are unique and say, you know, hey, Michael, I see that you're in OCSF. You know, I was wondering if you could take a look at this. You got my attention right there. Right. But others are, it's the same kind of response. And then again, and it's almost like, and you could tell because if I get an email from you at one in the morning, I know I'm on some automated thing. And now, now, now I'm not paying attention. Now I'm putting in junk at that mm-hmm. point. Right. Mm-hmm. But if you truly believe in the product, I want to feel your enthusiasm to sell it to me. Right. Not the same emails because between LinkedIn, and emails. When I say easily a hundred a day, I'm not exaggerating. Wow. <laughs> and so it it's a ton. And a lot of them are, are replies and things like that. But again, I want to hear the innovation. I'm I can't see everything new that's coming in, but be unique and, and be energetic and and talk to the person, talk to your audience, right? Don't just blast it to everybody. Just spend that one minute to look at my profile and make it personal to me. But mm-hmm. I still, I still read everything because there's stuff that I don't know about and and read about. Um, so again, I understand the struggle, but you have to understand there's so many people doing the same thing, and it just bombards people. And I have ears that will never reply and will block them immediately. I don't want to go that far because then what if something cool comes up that I don't know about? And now I'm, I could have had a hardened, a little more security posture hardening if I had taken the time to kind of investigate it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good approach and good advice for anybody listening, trying to <laughs> sell stuff. Um, do you have any favorite security tool or tools that are maybe not super well known, but that InfoSec pros should know about? I know Cali Linux is an easy one. Um, yeah, a couple, I'll, I'll go through. Uh, there's a couple recent ones. Um, uh, if you're doing pen test, like Metasploit is phenomenal. Um, and, and I'm and I'm of the the school of yes, I secure and I build, but I also love the offensive. I pen test my own environment constantly because I want to find things before somebody else does, and mm-hmm. so it's it's a unique place, but. There's there's three things that I've used in the past three weeks. Nikto, um, it's an open source. I don't know if you ever heard of that. It's an open source um, web app vulnerability. Uh, it's um, uh, N I K T O, which is I love it. It's great. It's got a, a thousands of built-in vulnerability scans for it, and it's an open source. Um, if you're um, Azure uh, Azure Hound. Um, is a really good one that I love. It's a um, 
it's a like a bloodhound data collector for uh privilege escalation with your mm-hmm. in your azure environment great tool uh really simple to use and um uh weird al uh, uh weird aal is is the the name of the equivalent in aws okay. um, that that you could use it's uh it, it's mm-hmm. um it's not a github it's i always say weird al makes me think of it but, but it's weird aal is the name of it and then the um my fa- I just love playing on with Cloud Goat. One, I love the logo and I love the name. But uh, if you ever heard of Cloud Goat, uh, it's an AWS um, pre-built capture to flag type program where oh, it, cool. it has pre-canned scenarios for you to walk through. So when, please don't, anybody listening, please, please, please don't put this in your production environment. <laughs> what it does is it creates an environment, a pre-canned scenario it creates things in your environment that are exploitable and it lets you go through and see how it teaches you how to kind of for pen testers i use it against my own environment to give me things that i could look for like different tool sets but that one's a good one for for more of the junior level and people are trying to get in it creates these um holes in an environment that shows you how to get how to use them but also how to plug them up so that's a great one. But again, another disclaimer, please don't put that in your production environment. <laughs> <laughs> I was reading through one of your articles and you mentioned that you used to be a firefighter. Uh, can you tell me a little bit about that? Yes, that, that was actually the dream uh, as young as I can remember. I always wanted to be a firefighter. And so that's what I was preparing to do through high school until I started to talk to firefighters. And most were like, yeah, don't do this. And so... Uh, luckily, I was able to to find my nits in computers, but I, I always had the itch. And so I went and became a volunteer firefighter for 12 years. Um, and so I actually have more firefighting certifications than I do professional certifications. <laughs> um, I rose to the rank uh, of lieutenant. Um, and so what's great about that, um, between working in hedge funds and working at the fire department, Dealing with stressful situations in security, I'm pretty good at now <laughs> between the two of those. But really, the, the, the firefighting really ingrained training habits um, of the, sa- the tabletop. It's why I'm so adamant on tabletop. It's the same thing, right? Part of my role as the lieutenant was a training officer, and it's setting up training. It's the same muscle memory. Just imagine what happens is you're on you're on the engine and you're going to an accident or or a house fire you don't have time to get off all right what do i do i grab this uh what do i do next i mean there you're talking life and death within seconds and so your muscle memory of you're not even thinking you're in that seat and you have a role to do in that seat and you just do it it's i don't have to think about it i get off i grab the tools i go i have a job to do I take that same mentality into the table topping, into just seeing the whole field, right? It's not, all right, I have this job, but how does this role affect the one to the left and to the right of me? And so that's, I, I never knew it at the time because when I was a firefighter, I wasn't in cyber yet. I was still in, in the infrastructure and architecture role. And so not realizing that the fire department would really help with security and incident response 
it's the same thing. It really prepares you. It's the preparation to prepare for it and really helping you through those stressful situations of just slowing your heart rate. It sounds bad, but it's the same thing in an incident response. For those who haven't been through it, you get jacked up during an incident response. It, it is an adrenaline rush and you forget things. And it's amazing when you go back with the lesson learned. And the fire department by far has helped me with that, with helping to the manage the stress of it all. Very cool. Yeah, that's uh, that's great. Um, okay, this is the last one, and I asked this one of everybody's on the show. Uh, so as wide or as narrow as you want, do you have any predictions for the future? I think I touched on one of them. I, I honestly believe in my heart that I think the cyber industry will realize sharing, collaborating is what we need to do. And I honestly, I do, and I see it. I see the turning in that direction. So I honestly believe you're going to see companies collaborate more. Um, cybersecurity companies, yes, but I, I feel like industry-wide, I think the energy sector, uh, infrastructure, all of those are going to start working together to help secure each other. I honestly, I honestly believe that. And then the, the other one I have for the future is the Cincinnati Bengals will win a Super Bowl with Joe Burrow <laughs> before he retires. That's, that's, my, that's my funny one. <laughs> Awesome. Well, thanks so much for being on the show, Michael. It was a real pleasure. Uh, I'm glad we connected and uh, I look forward to watching your career in the future. Thank you. I, th this was great. I, I love listening to, to the past ones. So this will be, uh, you know, my hope is maybe a year from now I get back on here. We talk about OCSF and how there's one, uh, one schema for everybody. Okay. That's great. We'll, we'll make it a date. I'll put it in the calendar. Awesome. Thank you so much. Okay. Take care. And that is a wrap for this, the 15th episode of the Cybersecurity Defenders podcast. We're super grateful and appreciate you listening in and engaging with us. If you found value from this podcast, we'd really appreciate it if you leave a quick review or rating. It would mean so much to the team who put this podcast together. And make sure you subscribe to the show wherever you are listening from. And again, thank you very much. And we'll see you on the next episode.